Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts, the 13th episode. About three, let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Item? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. O&P. Go. AFC. NRAO. Go. Network. Go. You got everything up? Go. Today, I want to continue talking about working in mission control, but I also figured it would be an appropriate time to talk about what happens when things go horribly wrong. That's because I'm writing this episode on the 13th of April, 2020. Those of you who are listening to this in real or near real time will know what I mean. First of all, I'm isolated at home with my family as the world deals with the worst global pandemic in 100 years, but it also happens to be the 50th anniversary of Apollo 13. And of course, any exploration of what it's like in mission control when things go horribly wrong must inevitably end up talking about Apollo 13. I don't plan to spend a lot of time talking about the mission itself. I think it would make the episode too long. And besides a simple online search, we'll turn up much more and better material on the mission than I could ever produce. But I do want to spend a bit of time talking about what it must have been like to work in mission control during those events 50 years ago. And I also want to take my hat off to the members of that mission operations team. If ever there was a group of people who embodied the spirit that we celebrate here on Terranauts, it was the members of the Apollo 13 mission operations team. Because in a way, the Apollo 13 story is the ultimate Terranaut story. It's about a team on the ground working with a crew in space to bring them home safely against very long odds. The crew couldn't do it alone, and the team had on the ground had to depend on the very special qualities and skills of the crew in space, but they also had to te- depend on their intimate knowledge of their spacecraft in a situation for which they had never planned. Okay, so to understand all of that, you need to know at least a little bit about Apollo 13. So as I said, there's a lot of information readily available, but here's a very brief summary. Apollo 13 was supposed to be the third mission to the surface of the moon. Astronauts Jim Lovell, Jim Swigert, and Fred Hayes launched from KSC on the 11th of April, 1970. Two and a half days into the flight, 200,000 miles from Earth, the spacecraft suffered a catastrophic failure when faulty wiring in a cryogenic oxygen tank caused an explosion. The explosion resulted in significant damage to the service module, including complete destruction of oxygen tank one and a leak in oxygen tank two, which caused it to begin slowly venting into space. The loss of oxygen deprived the command module, where the crew would normally ride for the trip to and from the moon, of not only breathable air, but also of power, since that oxygen was used for fuel for its fuel cells. To survive, the crew moved to the Lunar Exploration Module, or LEM, which was actually only designed to take two crew members to the moon's surface. Now it became their lifeboat. The command module was sealed. To get home in their lifeboat, the crew and MCC needed to figure out how to conserve as much water and power as possible. By the time they arrived home, the crew would be very cold, hungry, and very thirsty. 
with the mission almost all the way to the moon, NASA now faced a complicated decision about how to get them home. After analyzing a number of options that traded off a variety of technical risks against the amount of time that the crew would have to spend in their lifeboat, NASA eventually chose an option of having them perform a free return burn using the LEMS engine. That trajectory took Apollo 13 around the backside of the moon and then home towards Earth. The crew and mission control were confronted with several other life-threatening problems, including the need to adapt the service module's carbon dioxide filters to the LEM systems, the need to repower the command module from its emergency battery, which has never been done before, and the need to make one more course correction burn, again, entirely manually. In the end, after four days, the crew of Apollo 13 returned safely to Earth, although not before one final moment of high drama when the communications blackout period during their re-entry lasted almost two minutes longer than expected, causing many to wonder if they had burned up on entering the atmosphere. Now, although I never experienced anything like Apollo 13 in my time in mission control, the culture and spirit embodied in those six days in 1970 was still very much alive in the building when I worked there, and I suspect it is still today. And that's what I want to spend the rest of the episode talking about. For anyone who has worked in mission control, really a freaky thing about watching movies and documentaries about Apollo 13 is that although it's a completely unique situation, it is the environment is completely familiar. Some things about mission control don't change, even in a time like that. For instance, one of the things that struck me about Apollo 13 is the approach to prioritizing work and solving problems. It was the same one that I saw shift in and shift out in MCC whenever there was any kind of event or anomaly. Despite the stakes being all that much higher in Apollo 13, it was the same basic process, and it goes something like this. First of all, determine if there's a threat to crew safety and fix it if there is. Next, determine if you can preserve the mission and do what is needed if you can. In this case, they couldn't. Once the crew is safe and everything that is needed immediately is done, make the situation stable and start trying to understand the problem. At this stage, work may be urgent, but it won't be rushed. Analysis will also be the epitome of evidence-based decision-making, to use the modern idiom. Uh, by the way, in mission control, this wasn't a term that was current, at least not when I worked there. Instead, the mission evaluation room, which is the first-line engineering analysis room in mission control, used to have a more colorful way of saying this thing, this break. The mission evaluation room, which is the first-line engineering analysis room in mission control, used to have a more colorful way uh, of reflecting this attitude. They said, in God we trust, all others bring data. They were, and probably still are, particularly fond of saying this to young engineers and flight control controllers who made the mistake of inserting personal opinions or assumptions into the discussion of the nature of a problem or a solution without the attendant analysis data to back those opinions up. At every stage, analysis will be accompanied by testing. Testing of data to find corroborating data testing of conclusions by independent analysis, and testing of proposed solutions by any means available. 
at all times, someone will know exactly when a plan needs to be finalized in order to be implemented, and no opportunity to question and test the plan and its assumptions will be passed up while there is still time. I used to see this in MCC all the time. Um, to understand that, you need to understand a bit about how MCC was staffed and continues to be staffed. For each flight, there were three shifts, Orbit 1 and Orbit 2, that were on shift during the crew day and a planning shift that worked during the crew's night. At the start and the end of every shift, there would be a period of half an hour or more of shift handover when the oncoming flight controllers would first sit and watch the current shift and discuss what was happening and any issue that had been covered, uncovered and were being worked. Eventually, the new controllers would move into the console seats and the outgoing controllers would sit behind them as they settled in. At the end of the handover period, the oncoming flight director would pull the room, get a briefing from the incoming flight controllers, and when he was satisfied, declare the handover complete and the outgoing flight controllers would go off shift. Now, in the early days of SVS, we only had enough technical staff to work two shifts. So Canadian astronaut Mike McKay and I worked opposing 12-hour shifts. I'd hand over to him and 12 hours later, he'd hand over to me. Because we were out of phase with the PDRS guys in our back room, uh, I eventually got to see all of the PDRS shifts over the course of a couple of days. It was fascinating to me to see the problem solving and analysis play out across the shifts. If a given issue did not need to be resolved within a 24-hour period, the problem would be analyzed independently by each shift in turn. Even though the previous shift would hand over their analysis and proposed solution, the new shift would go back over the problem and analyze it again, and then hand it over to the next shift, who would do it again. At first, I couldn't believe what, that I was hearing the same conversation three times in a 24-hour period, and it seemed kind of like a form of paralysis by analysis. But I came to realize that it was not. It was a tried and true way of making sure that every problem was analyzed as thoroughly as possible. After all, if three different teams of flight controllers arrived at the same conclusion, more or less independently, there was a good chance it was the right answer. And that's really what I mean by leaving the solution to the very last moment to be implemented. The initial analysis of any problem frequently might take less than a single shift to complete. But if the solution was not needed until later in the flight, the solution was deferred so that other shifts could perform their analysis as well, and new facts, if they emerged, could be assimilated. In this way, Mission Control took all of the time that was needed to come up with the best available solution. And although I have no first-hand knowledge of what went on in Mission Control during Apollo 13, I can see that system at work. Every report about the reaction to the accident remarks on how calm everyone was, both the crew on orbit and the controllers on the ground. But this to me was just that training taking over. When the accident first happened, no one knew how serious a problem it was. The main thing they knew was that it was completely outside their experience. It didn't match any failure signature that anyone had thought of or trained for. And that was definitely bad. But the first response by everybody, crew and mission control, was to figure out how bad bad was to prioritize the bad effects, to assess the options, and to come up with a plan, with a priority on saving the crew. This actually took what seems like quite a while now, more than an hour, in fact. But once it was clear that the crew had to get out of the command module and get in the lifeboat, 
the plan was implemented smoothly. This is partly because the lifeboat scenario had been developed by the Mission Operations Directorate over the preceding months in response to a simulation that had been run in which a catastrophic failure of the command module power system had resulted in the simulated loss of the crew and the spacecraft. And even though that eventuality was considered unrealistic, the LEM as lifeboat scenario was developed and analyzed. Well, now it became a plan. The crew did not just bolt for the lifeboat and slam the door behind them, though. They and Mission Control carefully decided what they needed, including data from the command module's guidance computer before they shut it down, and they took it all with them as they moved into the LEM. Once they were in the LEM, I can just imagine the NASA analysis machine kicking into high gear. The list of decisions, large and small, needed to be compiled, and they needed to be prioritized by how big they were and by when they needed to be solved. For instance, I am completely convinced that somebody knew exactly when the various trajectory options would need to be implemented in order for them to work, because there were, in fact, several options available, the first of which, of course, was using the service module engine to just abort the mission short of the moon and come directly home. This would have been the one that had the shortest timeline. This would have been also the shortest option, but it required assuming that the engine on the damaged service module would not malfunction. If it did, the crew would probably be irretrievably lost. In the end, it was too big a risk, and so the option of a direct return was taken off the table. But the mission's current trajectory, the trajectory it was on at the time of the accident, was designed to take them to a point where they would enter orbit around the moon. It was not designed to bring them back to Earth. To get home, they were going to have to execute another burn of some kind. If they couldn't use the service module engine, they would have to use the engine on the LEM itself. But that engine had, ne had only ever been designed to take the lunar module down to the surface, not to propel the whole LEM command module service module stack around the backside of the moon and set it on a free return trajectory to Earth. In fact, to do so, new software had to be written for Mission Control's computers, which had never been configured to use the engine that way. And then Mission Control had to figure out whether maybe they should actually jettison the service module, since they couldn't use it anymore. Doing so would have made the spacecraft much lighter and would have meant that the mission could be shortened by as much as 36 hours. But doing so would also mean that the command module's critical heat shield would have to be exposed to the vacuum and radiation environment of space for more than two days, which it had not been designed for. I'm sure that someone spent every available hour looking at that problem, trying to determine exactly what code could go wrong and how likely those failures might be. And in the end, NASA decided that it was too big a risk, and the service module stayed attached until just before reentry. I am sure that all of those decisions were made exactly when they needed to be made and not any earlier, because once the decision was made, it became a plan. And once it was a plan, there would be no more questions, just finding ways of making it work. As Gene Kranz famously said, failure was not an option. And the way to make that statement a reality was, and is, to take as much time as possible to come up with the best available plan, and then go all in on that plan. No second thoughts, no second guessing. 
the lithium hydroxide or lyo canister in issue is another problem that fascinates me. I'm sure that once the crew was in the LEM, it was immediately obvious to controllers on the ground that the air quality could not be sustained until reentry. Like the command module, the LEM used a system of lithium hydroxide canisters to scrub CO2 out of the air. Without a lyo container, the crew would eventually suffocate as the air filled with carbon dioxide. But each lyo canister could only process so much carbon dioxide. The LEM had enough lyo canisters to handle two people breathing for about two days. Now it had to support three people for four days. Now, there were lots of lyo canisters in the command module, but they weren't designed to fit the scrubber unit in the limb. They were quite literally square pegs, and it had a round hole. I am sure that the first thing that flight controllers did was determine how long it would take for the LEM's air quality to degrade to the point of being dangerous, so that everyone knew how long they had to solve the problem. Next, the engineers in Mission Control started to design an adapter system to make the square command module Lyo container work with the LEM scrubber unit. But they had to do it using only materials the crew actually had access to in the LEM. And then they would not only have to figure out how to make it work, they would have to figure out how to teach the crew how to build it with only a radio link. But at least they knew how long they had to do that. Boy, if this isn't a case of simple engineering task being complicated by the constraints under which it has to work, I don't know what is. When I think about this feat of engineering, because that's really what it was, the first thing I am amazed by, which often goes unnoticed, is that there was actually someone in mission control with an encyclopedic enough knowledge of the LEM and its crew equipment that they could come up with a completely comprehensive list of the materials the crew had access to, including plastic covers from procedures manuals, hoses, and duct tape. Think about that. There was somebody on the ground who knew that spacecraft 200,000 miles or more away well enough to know where to find all of those materials. Talk about being in space without ever leaving the ground. Eventually, a solution was designed and explained to the crew using instructions like, pull off an arm's length of duct tape. But it worked. The command module Lyo containers successfully scrubbed the carbon dioxide from the LEM's small atmosphere until the crew was able to go back to the service module and power it up for reentry. Now, this last problem really speaks to me about the process that must have been used in mission control. We know that NASA immediately understood just how much of a problem repowering the module from its very small emergency battery was going to be, and we know that they spent every moment they had trying various ways of doing it until they found one that worked the best. In the end, it required over 500 steps, all of which had to be read up to and written down by the freezing, sleep-deprived, dehydrated crew in the limb. I have no doubt that the process took all of the four days that were available. That's how things work in the mission control environment. I'm sure that the procedures were tested until they found at least one that worked. That process is dramatized in the movie Apollo 13. Ken Mattingly, the astronaut who was supposed to fly on Apollo 13 but could not because he'd been exposed to rubella, is shown spending literally days in the command module simulator trying different procedures until one is found that works. It's portrayed as a heroic effort on his part, which it probably was. But think about it. Before he 
even got into the simulator. Someone not only had to analyze the command module system and write the procedures for him to test, but first someone had to reprogram and constrain that simulator to act like a command module that had no extra power other than its small battery and no extra oxygen. That can't have been a simple job. It was critical that they got it right. If they hadn't, they might have ended up with a set of procedures that while they worked on the ground would not have worked on orbit. Once again, there was some Terranaut or team of Terranauts working on that problem who knew enough about their spacecraft to be able to recreate a problem that was happening hundreds of thousands of miles away and recreate it on the ground. Exactly. In the end, the team, including Mattingly, came up with a procedure that was 500 steps long. I'm reasonably certain that they probably wrote that procedure down and gave it to someone, probably an astronaut who had not been part of the testing, to make sure that they could follow the steps when they were written down. And they probably rewrote it more than once. I'm sure that that analysis and testing continued until the last possible moment. But once it was a plan, it was the plan. Gene Kranz has been asked whether he was worried about this plan, whether he was concerned about a half-frozen, dehydrated crew being able to correctly execute 500 steps in a procedure they had been read to them over the radio and written down on any scraps of paper they could find. His answer, no, he wasn't. He says he knew the crew and he knew they could do it. To some, this may sound like bravado in hindsight. I actually think it was true. The fact of the matter was that Gene Krantz and the mission operations team would not have written a procedure that they did not think the crew could follow. I'm sure that they would have agonized over that question while they were writing the procedure, but once they had it, they would have believed it was going to work. Kind of like the time I was asked by a reporter during a shuttle flight if I was going to get up early and watch re-entry. This was a flight in which our laser camera system had spotted and characterized some damage to the outside of the shuttle. The damage had been analyzed, and it was determined that it wouldn't pose a threat to reentry. The reporter was asking me if I had confidence in that decision. To someone outside, it must have seemed like a bit of a leap of faith. To me, it was obvious. I basically said, no, I'm not worried. We do what we do, so we don't have to worry about the shuttle getting home safely, which it did. And on Apollo 13, when it was exactly the right time, the crew opened the hatch, re-entered the command module, and followed those 500 steps. And it worked, and they got home safely. The solution to all of these challenges and hundreds of other small ones besides are, in fact, a massive tribute to the processes, procedures, and culture that developed in mission control. When a completely unprecedented challenge was encountered, the system responded as it was intended to do. And it met this ultimate challenge with extraordinary effort and skill, but within the usual process. The planned shifts continued to cycle through MCC, the daily routine was adapted and then maintained, and everyone continued to do their job. And that's what makes the Apollo 13 experience the quintessential Terranaut story for me. Even though there were three astronauts on board the stricken spacecraft, there were hundreds of talented, dedicated people on the ground for whom that spacecraft was their spacecraft too. In a very real, although virtual sense, they were right there with the crew and with their skill and knowledge and creativity, but also their engineering discipline. They were able to help and to get the crew of that vehicle home safely. 
In a very real sense, that mission control team are my Tierra heroes. Like a lot of people who worked in MCC, I look at what they did, and I am glad that I never faced a challenge so daunting. But I hope that if I ever had, I would have lived up to their example. Okay, that's going to about do it for this episode of Terranauts, the 13th edition. Before I go, I realize that I owe you a story, the one about singing along to Stan Rogers in MCC. It's actually a story about the ground and the crew and how they work together, I guess, in a way. The situation was this. In the shuttle days, the crew's day would start with a wake-up call from the ground, followed by the delivery of the day's execute package, which at the time was basically a fax, sometimes short, occasionally quite long, that contained all of the procedure changes needed for the day. There was no more writing procedures on scrap paper. Well, the wake-up call was delivered in the form of a piece of music. Often, that music was picked by the crew's family members to be something that was important or familiar to them. On SDS 74 one morning, Chris Hadfield's wife, Ellen, knowing that Chris was a big Stan Rogers fan, had selected the iconic song, Northwest Passage, for the wake-up call. And a great choice it was, since the song is about Canada and explorers and exploration and going where other people have not. Anyway, it, it must have been late in the flight because I was by myself in the robotics mixer. The PDRS team had wrapped up operations for the flight and had gone home, and I was doing some last-minute close-down and cleanup. I wasn't really paying attention because it was the end of the planning shift and not much was going on, but of course, I had the air-to-ground loop in my ear. Suddenly, there was Stan Rogers in my ear singing... Ah, for just one time, I would take the Northwest Passage to find the hand of Franklin reaching for the Beaufort Sea. And I did what I often do when I hear Stan Rogers. I started singing along. And then I realized where I was. I was in Mission Control singing along to a song being played for astronauts on a spacecraft that was not on the planet with me. And I stopped singing, of course, but it was definitely a Terranauts moment. Well, that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Well, that's a wrap for this episode of Terranauts. Thanks for joining us. A reminder that you can now find Terranauts on iTunes and other podcatcher apps for iOS and Android. Please consider subscribing and leaving a review. If you have comments on the episode, you can email us at podcast at spaceq.ca. We read and answer all of your comments in a timely fashion. You can also find SpaceQ on Twitter at Canada in Space and on Facebook. Thanks again for listening and join us again next time when we'll go to space without ever leaving the planet. Talk to you then. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.